Cool fellow ag nerds, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich, and if you believe that agricultural innovation is a big part of the solution to many of our world's most important problems, you have found the right show. Today's episode is a good follow-up to last week's episode about one example of how ag tech is helping smallholder farmers in developing countries. We're also talking about the potential for ag tech in developing markets in this episode, but from a different perspective. My guest, Igor Buchatsky, sees real opportunity in very large integrated agricultural operations in these markets. So whereas last week we were focused on smallholder farmers, today's episode is about the very large, sophisticated operations that are hungry for technology and innovation in the developing world. Before I introduce you to Igor, I want to make sure that you know that one of my favorite ag podcasts, Fieldwork, is back for an all-new season. Co-hosts Mitchell Hora and Zach Johnson, who you may remember from episode 205 last year, are back to talk all things sustainable ag. This season, they'll tackle financing farm innovation, carbon markets, new sustainability standards in crops like cotton, and so much more. They're also doing a special focus on Washington County, Iowa, where Mitchell lives in farms, which has a very strong conservation culture. What's the special sauce? Well, listen and find out. Episodes drop weekly on Wednesdays. You can find them at fieldworktalk.org or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks, guys, for supporting the show and best of luck on the new season. So as I mentioned, Igor Buchatsky is on the show today. Igor is a mechanical engineer by training, but after getting his MBA from the Booth School of Business at University of Chicago, he started a career in management consulting. That led to a job with a family office back in his home country of Ukraine. It was in that role that he discovered his love and fascination for the first time in agriculture in 2007. Since that time, he's worked all over the world with agricultural operations and ag tech startups. He's a mentor for the Techstars Farm to Fork program, a board advisor to multiple ag tech startups, and in the process of raising his first venture fund. He's based in Boston, but you never know in the world where he's going to be. In fact, at the time of this interview, he was working on a project in Saudi Arabia. I'll drop you into the conversation here where Igor is describing going back to Ukraine to work for that family office and finding his true calling of agriculture. When I came in, uh, I was uh, supposed to focus on uh, metal and mining assets of the family office. But by pure luck, I stepped into uh, a pig farm that they had among their assets, and it was the third largest pig farm in uh, Ukraine at the moment. We had about 100,000 pigs, fully integrated, uh, our own land, our own feed mill, our own nucleus for breeding, uh, everything all uh, through the chain. And to tell the truth, Tim, it was love uh, from the first sight. Like uh, it was a revelation. Uh, Seriously, I thought, wow, that's what I should have been doing. Uh, for the last 10 years instead of mechanical engineering and management consulting because it was just amazing, amazing experience. So I dove ahead in into that business and we started growing it, bringing new technology, new new genetics, etc., etc. After that business was sold, I went to work for a large crop farming operation. We had about 70,000 hectares, which is roughly... 200,000 acres in Ukraine, uh, growing mostly like, you know, your typical commodity crops, uh, 
corn, uh, wheat, barley, oilseed, such as uh, sunflowers and uh, rapeseed. And after that project was sold, I went to work for uh, EDNF Man in Ukraine. Uh, EDNF Man is one of the largest and oldest sugar traders, uh, and they had, uh, again, their own farm and their own sugar mill in Ukraine with about 18,000 hectares, irrigation, sugar mill, the whole nine yards. So I had you know, a privilege and uh, a good luck to be exposed to all the major sort of sectors of agriculture. And finally, in mid-2019, I thought that it would be a good idea to raise my own fund and uh, start investing myself. So uh, we put together a team of people uh, with a good and very diverse background, two uh, farmers, me and uh, my other partner, Silvia Petanetto, and two other gentlemen, one with an investment uh, banking background, Vitaly Simonenko, and another one with a technology background, Dan Diage. And we uh, started fundraising. Uh, we prepared the pitch, uh, the whole thing, started fundraising, it was complete uh, disaster, as you could imagine, uh, in the middle of pandemic, trying to raise the first fund. I think we uh, got through it uh, as you know a much stronger team. Uh, how they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So uh, we did manage to find a few LPs who are interested in investing on a deal-by-deal basis at the moment. And we are going through... Uh, Two due diligence efforts right now, and fingers crossed, we will we'll be able to announce our first investment by June, July this year. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a whirlwind ag indoctrination since 2007. You've you've been on, and I'm sure with your background in engineering and then consulting, the family office that hired you over there wanted you to grow their portfolio. And so what did you see as opportunity when you came in 100,000 pigs? What did you see as opportunity to expand the ag portfolio? Well, back then, it was just the beginning of the agricultural golden rush in Ukraine, because you have to remember the, the agriculture in Ukraine, as in most all of the Soviet Union republics, was like totally devastated by the collective farm system. And, you know, the Ukraine and the southern part of Russia, that was always like a bread basket of Europe, at some point was importing wheat and other agricultural commodities to feed the people and, you know, of Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, nobody really paid a lot of attention to agriculture and uh, Ukraine became independent in 1999 and until 2007, everybody was sort of trying to develop all kinds of other businesses or privatize, uh, you know, government enterprises, heavy industry, machine building, ports, shipbuilding yards, whatever was there. And agriculture was sort of under the radar. But in 2007, it sort of became apparent to quite a few people that, you know, we have a fantastic asset here in our hand. We have a very fertile land. We have a terrific uh, climate. I mean, relatively speaking, by European standards, right? Uh, we have a terrific climate. We have access to the Black Sea. We're right in the middle between, you know, Europe, Middle East, 
and uh, Russia and uh, Asian republics of uh, former Soviet Union. So we should be taking advantage of it. And uh, people started to look into it seriously. And when I started to look into what we can do for our hog farm, I realized that, first of all, we can leverage on the sort of a brand name and on the position. We were literally like 40 minutes outside of Kyiv, which is a capital and by far the largest market in Ukraine. And we could grow this. We have the team, we have the know-how, we have the money. We could buy other farms who were not doing so great, who were sort of barely making ends meet or, or going out of business. We could buy them, we could turn around, we could consolidate them and become a, you know, a large dominant player in the industry. And back then, I mean, the margins were quite attractive. And since then, they didn't really deteriorated that much. I had at, uh, at one uh, of the companies, I had a COO uh, from the United States, uh, the guy who is third or fourth generation farmer from Iowa, if I'm not mistaken. And we were looking at our economics and said, Igor, you know, I don't know any farm in, in the U.S. who makes, you know, 20, 25% net profit. Okay. And, uh, you know, the land is terrific here. The people are knowledgeable. Uh, the cost of acquiring the land or renting the land is super, super low. So if done right, you can be easily making, you know, $250, $300 per hectare by just growing commodity crops. I'm not even talking about extra uh, value you can create if you go down the value creation line going to the you know oil processing or animals or any meat processing etc cetera, etc cetera. and that actually brings me kind of the, the next thing i wanted to talk to you about which is which is now ag tech and in venture which you're entering into you know what gets you excited there and how does that relate to what you just described what gets me excited is the fact that so many bright ideas you know, out-of-the-box ideas are happening now. And we are at the point in time where the technologies are becoming more accessible, more affordable, and we're getting to the sort of a scale at which all these technologies and all these ideas starting to converge, right? Like 10 years ago, those farm management systems that are using satellite images or, you know, all these um, new technologies were impossible to think of because the images were not available. The resolution was not, you know, good enough. The technology was not there to analyze this. And the people didn't have equipment to implement what they could, you know, get from those images or those ideas and now it's actually all happening and it's all happening at the same time on different sort of directions it's really like i think one of the major issue what you actually highlighted at one of your uh, blogs is that there is a fatigue in farmers right they're just getting overwhelmed with all those new ideas and innovations and new gadgets and new technology they're getting like oh my god what do i do where do i run and what they start uh, doing first. 
you had mentioned that, you know, one of the opportunities was sort of integrating these operations, like the fully integrated hog operation that you played a part in. Is that still a big opportunity in countries like Ukraine? And, and uh, maybe talk about where they stand in terms of, you know, having integrated operations. I think in generally, I would say yes. However, when people saw the opportunity, they jumped on it and capitalized uh, and took advantage of it rather fast. So when I was preparing for this call, I went through the list of top five farming enterprises in Ukraine and in Russia, the markets that are you know near and dear to my heart. And I realized that almost all of them are already vertically integrated, right? So if you look at Ukraine, you have like top three are the companies that two out of those three are completely vertically integrated. So for instance, number one, land owner, right? They, they don't own the land per se, but they have a long-term agreements with the landowner. So they lease the land on like 10 or 15 year basis. So the company is called Kernel, and they have 550,000 hectares of land under management, which is even more impressive in acres. It's roughly 1.4 million acres, right? So those guys are fully vertically integrated. They have their own farms. They have their own oil uh, crushing plants. They have their own terminal. They have their own fleet of trucks to take the oil and fat to the terminal. So they are completely incorporating all the margin along the value chain, right? And the next on the list is Ukraland Farming. They have 500,000 hectares and they are the largest producer of eggs in Ukraine, okay? And so on and so forth. You go to the number four, MHP, it's the largest producer of poultry. I think they're actually the largest producer of poultry in Europe at the moment. Okay, and uh, the number five on this list are Starta. They're the largest producer of sugar in Ukraine. They have everything. They have, you know, their own land. They have their own sugar mills. By the way, the sugar mills produce a lot of uh, molasses and uh, sugar beet pulp, which they use to feed their own dairy cows. Dairy cows, they produce the dairy meal, etc., etc. So those guys try to incorporate every opportunity along the value chain. The same thing in Russia. The number one company in Russia, Prodimex, 790,000 hectares under management, the largest producer of sugar in Russia. Number three, Rusagra, 675,000 hectares under management. You know, number one producer of pigs, you know, they're also a large producer of sugar, large producer of oils and fats, large producer of poultry, and uh, some other uh, products of uh, processing. So you could see that those guys already taking advantage. I think that there is definitely room for smaller players and they are there. But um, in Ukraine and Russia, the predominant model is to get into the value chain as far as you could to make sure that you're controlling as much as you could, and you're incorporating as much of the margin as you could. Okay, interesting. And now bringing things back to technology here, 
where do you see these who are, you know, who you just said are kind of going to be developing the purchasing power in agriculture? What specific types of technologies do you see these large integrators needing? One of my sort of uh, favorite points of uh, discussion with, uh, with the startups is that most of them don't realize the opportunity that developing markets present. I'll give you an example. I was advising one farm management software company, and they were like, you know, the hottest thing in the U.S., and they were growing, and they had under management of their farm management software about 20,000 hectares, if I'm not mistaken, something like that, right? And they had a portfolio of around 250 farmers to get to that number, right? Because the agriculture is very fragmented, especially when it comes to the crop farm. So when I saw that, and I really liked the product, I really liked the software, and my first thought was like, guys, you have a huge labor force trying to knock on the door of those farmers, sending them emails and letters and you know, trying to get them one by one. And each farmer you get, there's a huge celebration and each of them brings 200 hectares into your portfolio and everybody loves that. And it's great. But listen, if you go to Ukraine and you convert one of those top five, your portfolio under management is going to be 50 times bigger in one go, right? So the cost of acquisition the effort you put into that and the reward that you're going to reap is just from a different galaxy, right? You cannot even compare. And, you know, I'm not saying that everybody who's in the act should just drop everything and, and rush to, you know, Russia, Ukraine or Brazil or China to do that. But, you know, at some point, you have to really stop and think about your cost of customer acquisition, about the the economics of the business, and seriously consider saying, okay, maybe I should investigate and try to get a couple of large clients in those geographies. Because, like I said, you send a couple of experienced you know, salespeople there, open a couple of doors, talk to these guys, and land one or two of those contracts, and immediately, you know, your financials, your traction, the amount of data and data points that you're going to get is going to be like, you know, quadrupling, you know, 10 times, 20 times higher than what you have right now, which creates a tremendous amount of value, obviously, for you as well as for those companies. Because think about the decision-making process of a farmer, right? Let's say that you came up with some kind of a technology that is going to save a farmer a dollar per hectare right? Whatever. Uh, some new app that is going to let you manage your you know, fertilizers better or you know, manage your other consumables better. And you say, okay, if you use my app, you're going to save a dollar per hectare. Great. The farmer has 200 hectares. And you know what? At the end of the day, he might think, listen, now I need to install it. I need to learn how to use it. It's going to be pain in the neck. At the end of the day, it's all about $200 per year. Do I really want to get into that or right now, maybe later? I don't know. Maybe not. Now, 
think about a company like Kernel, 550,000 hectares, a dollar per hectare, it's a half a million dollars in saving. Now, would they look into that? Absolutely they would. Would they be willing to invest into that technology? No doubt about it. Do they have time, money, people, and resources? Of course they do. So this is my logic when I sort of advocate entrepreneurs to look across the ocean or to look into those geographies for growth because it's happening. And by the way, those guys are not waiting for entrepreneurs from the United States or Israel or uh, Western Europe to come to them. They have the local ecosystem already. They already have technology there that either replicating or or creating solutions for their problems. So uh, I think that there's still plenty of opportunity, but it's not going to be there forever. And for someone in uh, you know a place like the U.S. or I would assume also you know like maybe Canada or Europe, you know going to one of these countries it seems daunting, and there's so much risk already in growing a startup that it, it just feels riskier. Are there any you know any risks that they should be aware of when kind of wandering out into a place like this with a new startup? No, absolutely, Tim. I mean, you are, you know, hitting all the right points. And that's exactly what's happening because uh, like my, uh, you know, partner, uh, Silvio, likes to say uh, he's a third generation farmer from Brazil and he's helping a couple of companies right now to enter Brazil. And, and those guys, when they came to him, they said, I mean, Silvio, we know where Brazil is on the map, but we really have no idea how to do business there, where to go, where to start. And you, you're absolutely right. You need to find a right channel, a right partner. You need to be at the right moment in the development of your company. Again, it's not for everybody, right? Like if you're just like struggling to make your product work, trying to find a market fit or trying to like, improve uh, whatever you MVP you had a couple of months ago, obviously forget about, you know, Ukraine, forget about Brazil, forget about Russia, just make sure that this thing works on this little small farm in, you know, 200 hectares. And, you know, we'll talk later. But if you already have attraction, you, you have a working product, you have customers who love it, you know, who, who are ready to pay for it, and you have a team of people that, can handle the business in the U.S. that can handle, you know, this distraction because that's going to be a distraction. It's going to be adventure. Then maybe you could consider that. And I would strongly recommend to consider it because this is the market where you could create tremendous value for all the stakeholders because of the magnitude, because of a certain hunger for new technologies and, um, because of the size, like I said, the size of the market and the level of consolidation. Just to give you an idea, I was, I was again, when I was preparing for the call today, I was looking at top 10 countries with the largest land bank. And out of those top 10, only three countries are actually like developed economies, right? It's USA, Australia, and Canada. The rest of them, it's Brazil, India, Russia, China, Argentina, Nigeria, and Ukraine. And in Brazil, in Russia, and in Ukraine, the number of land controlled by large farms is 
10 to 15 percent of the entire land bank. Okay, so the land bank of Ukraine is 32 million hectares. Out of 32, the 6 million controlled by like top 10 companies. And in places like that, because I know you've worked with producers there and other places in the world, including the U.S., how receptive are they going to be to ag tech companies? You know, we talked about the the tech fatigue, uh, but are they wanting people to come and work with them to develop technologies together? They do. I think that the beauty of those large companies is that, again, they have resources to do that. They have financial resources. They have plenty of land to experiment. They have people. Like all of those companies that I mentioned, they all have chief digital officers. Without any exception, they have a staff of people who are looking at those technologies, who are experimenting with the local entrepreneurs, who have designated people who are, you know, have designated field and equipment to experiment with that. So those guys are ready, willing, and able to do that. Okay. Again, we have a lot of things in the ecosystem right now that are solutions in the search of a problem, right? where I, quite frankly, don't see any use for it in a real farm. It might be really cool, but I don't think if I was a farmer, I would pay a penny for it. But there are plenty of companies, plenty of ideas, plenty of technologies that are ready to be implemented. So I think that, again, most of those companies have staff designated to look at those technologies and, and see what's applicable and what's not and, and how they can benefit from it. So the need and the hunger is definitely there. And like I said, they're not just sitting and waiting there to be given them on the silver plate, those ideas. Those guys see what's happening. They, they keep their fingers on the pulse. Some of them already have their own accelerator programs or hackathons and some of them develop their own uh, products internally, which are actually quite impressive. And a few of them are trying to commercialize it outside of the company. I know when you and I connected, and this has been weeks now about doing this interview, one of the things you want to talk about was sort of consolidation in the space. And here we are the last week of February, and Crazy. we're seeing some consolidation this Crazy. week in the space. And so was, it's yeah. kind of exciting. But uh, talk about your thoughts there. That's, uh, you know, way overdue. It was the same thought that I was looking at the of this news and I'm like, oh my God, we just talked about it and we decided that it's going to be one of the topics we talk at the podcast. And now it's like one after the other. First, the farm dog was acquired by Deveron. Uh, the Fluorosat acquires uh, Dagan and becomes Regrow. Uh, Dihat, the Indian marketplace, today announced that they acquired the farm guy. I think it's beautiful. I think that should have been done two years ago. They should have started two years ago. I'm actually like really surprised that it's taking so long for the industry to catch up. But on the other hand, I'm surprised and I'm not surprised at the same time because I've met enough entrepreneurs to understand that most of them are very ambitious and they look at the acquisition as a failure. You know, maybe it's too strong of a word, but if you are being acquired, I would say that a lot of them look at that, that, ah, you know, I, I didn't do 
the good job. Because if I did do a good job, then I would be the one acquiring other company, which I think, again, from a business perspective is complete nonsense. I think that a lot of those companies that are popping up every day should seriously reconsider or revisit their business model and think about being a provider of a service or a feature or product to other bigger companies. I think there is nothing wrong with that. You can open you know, other opportunities by being a supplier of shovels and jeans to the 49ers who are going for the gold rush, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, we all know that those are the actual guys who made the money, right? Not the guys who went trying to to find gold. Yeah, some of them hit it big, but most of them found a couple of pieces and, and that was it, right? But the guys who sold shovels and, and boots and, and equipment and jeans made huge profits on that. So the guys are going for like very tiny slice of the pie and they're like, okay, we, we, we have the solution for this problem and we're going to nail it and we're going to be great and this and that without realizing that you know, this particular problem is just a part of a much bigger picture for the farmer. So for him, the last thing he wants to do is to have 10 different or 15 different applications addressing whatever, your fertilizer management, right? But ideally for him, he has one application, one company that provides the entire spectrum, right? That, that manages my phosphorus, my nitrogen, my NPK, my ammonia, whatever it is, you know, manure, whatever it is I'm using. So instead of trying to go and sell the farmers this little idea of, you know, managing this particular, you know, micro element, why don't you go to a company that is already doing it and say, guys, listen, you're doing this. Here's the product that would fit your portfolio perfectly. We, you know, we developed it, we tested it or whatever. Maybe we need some money to test it and maybe we need your access to the farmers to do a MVP and, and market fit. I think people should be doing more of that, not less. Don't, don't try to fight that battle. Just take a step back. Think about the level of importance because obviously all of them think that the issue that they're focusing in is the only issue that the farmer is concerned with. That before that, everything was like, okay, it was fine. But now that we show up with that particular feature or that particular idea, now this is going to be like, you know, earth shattering and... Disruptive? Disruptive, exactly, Tim. You read my mind. That this is going to disrupt the, the industry and this is going to be like a new era. When in reality, yeah, it's a great product. It's it's a great feature. It, it's a great stuff. But guys it's going to be much easier for you to sell it if you partner up with some bigger players. Well, Igor, thank you very much. I appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It was a pleasure. Pleasure, really. Thank you so very much to Igor Buchatsky for being on the show. Enjoyed that conversation and an interesting global perspective. Learn more about him and what he's doing over on his website, bglobalcap.com. I also want to give a special heartfelt thank you to all of you who share these episodes on social media. 
I've had a full plate lately, and it's been everything I've been able to do just to get an episode out every week. So my online promotion activities has basically dropped to zero. Anytime you can help spread the word about this show, it really means the world to me. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Shout out as well to the Fieldwork Podcast for sponsoring this episode. Check them out over at fieldworktalk.org. As always, thanks for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.